because as a property investor, obviously the population has a massive impact on housing. Uh, Obviously people need roofs over their head and uh, if we have more people, that's more roofs. What does that actually mean? Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show is a code cracker. We're going to dig into the relationship with real estate and population. And of course, that may sound as boring as batshit, but I assure you there is some hidden gems in the conversation around Australia's population property Ponzi scheme. We're going to dig into the good, the bad and the ugly of what is going on when it comes to migration, how it affects the real estate community and of course how property investors can profit from the ebbs and flow of migration. Today, it is a massive topic whether Australia should become a big country or remain a fairly mid-sized country when it comes to its scale of population. We're going to have the argument, we're going to have the debate and talk property. Hey, if it's your first time tuning in, welcome aboard to the show Uh, There are some rules, as long-term listeners know. I think I sound absolutely boring if you play me in normal speed. So, rules of the show. Play the show in double speed. Get your life back. Speed me up. I do not sound bizarre. And, of course, if it is one of your first time tuning in, just remember... The other episodes of The Urban Property Investor are lessons on real estate. So feel free to dart about, go back if you like, and uh, listen to some alternative property education if population economics is not for you. But I tell you what, uh, about, I don't know, four or five years ago, I started writing on the content text of population economics and it is something I track, it is something I'm interested in because as a property investor, obviously the population has a massive impact on housing. Uh, Obviously people need roofs over their head and uh, if we have more people, that's more roofs. What does that actually mean? Now, before we get started, I just want to clarify uh, from my last episode a few dynamics. Firstly, uh, the episode was a bit of a pep talk, wasn't it? Everyone get the pep talk? I hope you got the pep talk. The old dead leg in in the leg, the old punch in the leg. But uh, really, the idea of the last episode was just the context of you actually are taking a bigger risk by not investing at all rather than uh, investing. That was really the context of the show. So, 
you know, let's face it, uh, I think sitting on the sidelines in life is really, really not going to get you anywhere. Fear is not going to create a financial solution. So uh, the biggest risk of real estate is going around the Monopoly board three times and not buying real estate. That is the biggest risk, not playing. So you got to play. So population economics is part of the game. And today I want to explain what that means to you. Also want to clarify, uh, I only identify as a woman in sport within Pilates. Uh, other sports, I identify as a man. Yes, um, I'm very good at other sports. I play a lot of tennis, very good tennis player, very good tennis player, uh, very good uh, uh, diver, very good snorkeler, uh, great mountain biker. Yeah, and fearless, fearless when it comes to mountain biking. Uh, and uh, it's really just Pilates. And, and really, the only reason is the teachers never acknowledge that uh, a man is in the room. They just refer to me as one of the girls. So... Hence why I identify as a woman in a Pilates class. So I just wanted to clarify that. Um, There was a bit of confusion, certainly. Uh, And thank you for the messages of support from from the Pilates community. Uh, There are other men that do Pilates, apparently. So that is amazing as well. So, hey, uh, this week I had a appointment with the doctor around getting my eyes uh, checked. My eyes have been fried by Zoom. Yes, uh, lockdowns have led to blindness in my eyes. So uh, coronavirus, damn you, because now uh, I need glasses to uh, sort of I don't know, see about one foot in front of me. However, I can still see uh, further out. And the doctor said I could pilot a Qantas jet. My eyes are that good. But close up, I need to now wear glasses. So that sucks because I'm I'm not really accustomed to doing that. I was known as the 2020 guy. People uh, always appreciated my vision. I could spot, you know, a whale five miles off the shore and point to it. I had uh, that good of eyesight. So a little bit sad that the eyesight is being uh, stretched from the old Zoom. So I've got uh, a few things which I now need to uh, use to go to work. Um, I've got my noise-cancelling earphones for the gospodars. Uh, in my street, I don't know about your street, but literally everyone seems to mow their lawn every single day. Uh, there's all sorts of things happening within the uh, landscape economy, I guess you would call it. Uh, and now eye drops, eyewear, uh, you know, glasses to stop the blue light, um, I've got it all. I've got it all. So uh, I'm prepared for Omicron and working from home, albeit um, I'd much prefer to be uh, running around. And uh, certainly, uh, if you would ask me, did I enjoy working in an office or working at home, I would have to lean towards 
uh, the office. But let's face it, the digital world is here, a blend of the two, and uh, it's here to stay. So working from home, but also catching up with other business people and doing some work um, you know, in an office is going to be the future of economics. Today, we're going to talk about a part of economics. We're going to talk about population economics. And for me, there is really a few economic underbellies which drive real estate. We've got population economics. We've got really the urban behavioral economy, which is economics around really spatial transformation. We've got global economics that can always impact the real estate marketplace, the share market, the ASX. uh, If the American share market was to crash tomorrow, it's going to have some effects, right? The global economy, uh, globalization, everything is interlinked and therefore you do get uh, some headwinds when things change. We've got the command economy. I talk about that a lot, that really the government pulls the strings with real estate and the outcome you're going to get through wealth from real estate is very much tied to economics through government decision-making. Uh, gone are the days really that just supply and demand drive real estate really uh, the commands that come from above are big, big drivers of where the real estate stays slow, goes faster, or even booms. We saw that with the Royal Commission, with APRA stepping into lending, with government uh, basically departments choosing really uh, how the speed of the real estate market actually works. The command economy is a big economy within real estate. We got the knowledge economy, which really, besides the fact that we are being driven by a stimulus boom, really, we're also being driven by a knowledge boom, the, the, the ability for people to take their knowledge and work remotely, work from home, um, is a thing. And knowledge economics and real estate is very much connected to where real estate is at at the moment. We've got things like the shared economy, uh, which of course, from a real estate point of view, allows us to use platforms like Airbnb and Stays and, and do some creative things with our real estate to increase our cash flow. We've obviously got the traditional economy, which is uh, obviously driven around things like interest rates, um, you know, sp- what people are spending, how many people are employed, all of this kind of traditional uh, conversation pieces around the economy all affects the real estate marketplace. Uh, We've also got the green economy, right? And this is an emerging conversation in real estate. It's really something which smart property investors are designing portfolios to accommodate into the future. And of course, uh, with what is going on around the world, um, when it comes to climate resilience, real estate is obviously part of that conversation. Uh, downturn economics is a thing, right? We just uh, fundamentally are in a downturn, but it's actually upside down, right? Downturns are almost now the way you make money out of real estate and upturns are really the slow and steady approach 
to the market cycle, if you like. Um, and it's kind of upside down, but it is what it is. After the GFC, similar thing happened, you know, instead of a massive downturn, uh, which you would expect from basically banks around the world going into insolvency, you had the polar opposite. You had the command economy kick into play. You had um, a growth spurt off the back of the GFC. Uh, so the downturn led to growth. Um, coronavirus, very similar. Really, it was a downturn. You had the government stepping in to stimulate the economy the downturn led to a massive boom, the stimulus boom. And, you know, now we're going into a normal marketplace, a normal, I guess, uh, flowing market. And it will probably feel, which is is really just the, the uplift of a normal marketplace. And it's probably going to feel more like a, a, a downturn than an upturn, um, which makes no sense, right? Nothing makes sense anymore. That's really what I was alluding to last podcast. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, the fire economy, the fire economy. It's very much linked to population economics, <clears throat> how really uh, certain industries really do dominate how Australia is being created. And Certainly, the property industry is one of the biggest bedrocks of Australia, and it is something which um, you'll you'll find that does influence where Australia is headed. Now, it's fair to say, uh, over the last two years or whatever it is since um, the old virus was let out of the lab, uh, the Migration into Australia has not been robust. We've had a lot of expats return, which is great. They've bought a lot <clears throat> of uh, their financial nous back to the country. Uh, we're starting to now see a lot of people leave the country to do their gap years overseas and go learn some skills and uh, certainly manoeuvre into some of those high-paying jobs in Asia and Europe and America. So we're starting to see a, a lot of people leave. Some of our brain drain, if you like, is on the move. And uh, one of the conversations around real estate was Australian real estate would collapse if the population was not stimulated and coming into the country. And of course, that did not unfold. That myth, if you like, got busted. We busted a myth in Australia that we need constant people coming into the system to feed the system. And uh, probably the reason, the major reason it didn't necessarily um, you know, collapse was there was a lot of demand from owner-occupiers and, of course, a lot of demand from first-home buyers. So, what we learned, one of the takeaways, if you like, from the pandemic is that if the population is uh, not flowing in from migration, if we make it a lot easier for first home buyers to buy, then you will get this extra boost that the fire economy, which we'll talk about, which is designed around real estate, um, will will continue to be fed, and uh, that 
in itself is a bit of a breakthrough in some of the logic around real estate. Now, I think we've seen some of the headlines, no doubt you've seen some of the headlines that Australia, you know, wants a shitload of people coming into it. Uh, The New South Wales Premier was quoted on record stating that he wants at least 2 million new Australian uh, residents very, very quickly. So obviously, um, unless we all get jiggy with it, um, we are not going to have 2 million more skilled people into the economy. And of course, having babies doesn't necessarily impact GDP because of course, uh, GDP is a measurement really of someone going to work and doing something. So really, uh, we are at a crossroads. Um, and government really has has opened the gates and they're talking about getting around 200,000 new immigrants uh, into the country on temporary visas by June 2022. So big Australia... Is it really what it's all cracked up to be? Recently, I guess I began to question whether Australia's future is a big population, a small population, more of a sustainable population conversation. Certainly prior to coronavirus, uh, I felt getting around major cities was very, very difficult. They were very, very crammed. Um, It's been a blessing in disguise, coronavirus, that Melbourne and Sydney have had small amounts of their large-scale population leave. Uh, 30,000 people have kind of left each city. Um, You don't notice it because Melbourne is a city of 5 million people. Sydney is a city of 5 million people. It's just too big to notice. The aggregate size, if you like, is just of both cities are just monsters. So Australia has a business plan and by 2040, it wants to reach the milestone of fundamentally around 40 million Australians. And of course, it's taken, you know, 228 years to reach 25 million people. Uh, We are talking about adding the population of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane combined together in really the next 30 years, uh, putting uh, the population of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane into Australia. So you can imagine just how many properties and homes we will need to accomplish that. And of course, right now, there just is not enough stock. I mean, um, the grant around the building boost scheme really absorbed all the available land and of course uh, fueled a lot of demand from first home buyers jumping into the market getting their piece of the puzzle uh, when you give people access to their super plus give them twenty five thousand dollars from the federal government plus you know twenty twenty five thousand dollars from the state government all of a sudden uh with no doubt an extra 20, 25 grand in a first homeowner's bank account, you've got over $100,000 to play with. And of course, that buys a property. So uh, what we did see was 
there wasn't a need for huge amounts of population to come in to fuel the real estate market. However, we did need stimulus to fuel the real estate marketplace. But let's have the conversation around migration and population economics. The reality is we need to build Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane again in the next 30 years to keep up with really the population forecast. And it is a bit of an algorithm, if you like. So I tell you what, here's the upside to more people coming into the country. If you think you've bought in a, I don't know, area far away from the city and uh, it's all you could afford and, you know, maybe you feel like, um, you know, the location you've bought in or whatever it may be, maybe inferior, guess what? You're already ahead of basically a huge population that doesn't exist yet. No doubt, even if you're the last home on, I don't know, the edge of Melbourne right now, you're literally the last home on the edge of Melbourne right now. In 10 years from now, you're not going to be the last home. So there is more to come. And Really, uh, when we talk about Australia and we talk about real estate, we need to factor in the, f- the conversation that there is more to come. And it feels like quite often it's the end. But Australia is a unique country, one of very few countries around the world, which is a magnet. It is a magnet of where people want to live, the lifestyle here in Australia even for the less uh, qualified, is very, very good. We have obviously really nice weather. Um, Some places have, you know, over 250 sunny days a year. Now, having lived in Europe, having lived in London, for example, man, you just feel pretty gloomy every single day waking up in London because it's cold, it's wet, uh, there really is not a lot to do. Uh, you, um, you know, end up smashing pints in pubs and uh, talking shite with uh, people from London because it's it's gloomy. You're cold and you just want to sit by a fire, right? So you know, we are blessed here to have really a lucky uh, country when it comes to you know, are being a bit of a people magnet, you know, not too many people are, I don't know, migrating to Namibia at the moment. Most people are trying to get off certain places and get to to other places. And of course, um, here in Australia, because we are a bit of an island, we also can dictate who comes to the country, which is uh, quite an interesting phenomena as well. And of course, Australia needs population for one big looming problem and that is people are living longer. Uh, The average child born in the West today, for example, has a 50% chance of living to over 105 years of age and the pension system is not designed to look after a person who is 105 years of age. The pension system was created 
for uh, someone to retire at age 65 and die at age 70. That's how, that's what it was designed for. If you look at most pension amounts, they really allow someone to live for sort of five years. That's about it. That's all, that's all the money that's in the account. The average Australian pension is something like $200,000 in retirement. So that's not going to last a long time. So really, when we look at this thing called population economics, we're also factoring in that most of Australia is going to grow older and live longer and be connected to taxpayers for a lot longer. And of course, as we know, out of every 100 Australians born, 75% of Australians end up on the pension. So if people are going to end up on the pension and live to over 100, um, that means they could be using the pension system for 35 years. And you're going to need a lot of workers paying tax to prop that up. And if anything, uh, we call that in population economics the the grease effect. Now, if you cast your mind back, you may remember uh, sort of, I don't know, 10 years ago, Greece imploded. It imploded. Uh, it did not have enough money to pay for its public servants, did not have any money. It went broke. Uh, Greece went into liquidation. One of the reasons why it went into this situation of uh, really a economic disaster and needed to be bailed out was the retirement age was very, very low, um, around 60 years of age, and the retirement packages were very, very good. The pension was very, very good. But there was just not enough people at the bottom of the funnel working to pay for the top of the funnel uh, pensioners to accommodate uh, fundamentally keeping the country afloat. And the pensioners, if you like, in Greece, sent Greece broke. And that in itself is a worry for many, many governments. If you've got an aging population, you don't have a young population that can go to work at the bottom, then, you know, you're going to wobble, right? And so a lot of Australia's decision-making around population and bringing more people into Australia is driven off the back of the idea that you need more people at the bottom to fix the problem at the top, which is a lot of people um, are going to be pensioners. Now, Australia traditionally runs a bit of a skills-based migration system. In other words, you come if you qualify, if you've got a um, job uh, which is on the shortages list, you know, and you've got a skill that can fix that shortage list, you can qualify to come into Australia. Uh, we are not a lottery system. You know, America still runs a lottery system. You can get into America and if your number comes up, so to speak. So um, though they have certainly other versions of migration, they still do run a lottery system. So skills-based migration is how it works here, right? And uh, even there are 
a lot of people coming into the country, the argument is, well, do we really need, you know, another hairdresser? Do we really need another uh, quasi-skill that really there is a shortage right now, but is it actually going to deliver an outcome for Australia? So, our universities, if you like, are highly ranked around the world and they serve as basically an incubator for people who want to stay in Australia. So the government is certainly keen to get the students back in because as we know, students at the moment also prop up a lot of businesses shortfall in workforce, jobs that really local people don't want to do. If you were to say uh, Australia runs a slave economy, it really is the student economy. I mean, they will do jobs which, you know, Australians turn their nose down at. And uh, I've been on the reverse of that. Certainly when I worked in a pub in London, I felt like a slave. Um, No English person wanted to be a bartender in London working for three pounds an hour, um, listening to people with no teeth yabber on about their football club it was horrendous um and of course but as a young person i mean these are some of the conversations you you have with yourself let's go and see if it teaches me something and certainly a lot of the students that come here end up i don't know working in uh, strange places which uh you know are just little food stalls and things like that right So certainly helps certain businesses keep going. And as we know, uh, a lot of Australia's industry is service-based and obviously you can't run a business and serve people if you do not have the workforce to accomplish that goal. So how does population economics works? Well, when you hear the term GDP, it's a measurement of how the economy is growing, GDP. Every quarter you hear this, uh, the GDP, the country is growing. And um, if you have two negative quarters in a row of country declining, you have what is fundamentally known as a recession. And uh, recessions kind of scare the bejesus out of Australians because we actually went the longest period of time ever without a recession or something like 28 years in a row. But recessions aren't necessarily bad things. It's just an economic measurement, right? GDP uh, fundamentally represents the total amount of goods and services produced over a period of time, over a quarter, over a year. So uh, obviously a country has jobs and it has production Um, And so that is measured. And obviously, if it's going up, um, you know, governments feel really good about that. They feel like they've done their job. If it's going backwards, people are like, well, why uh, is our pie diminishing, right? However, population economics works uh, also based on a terminology known as GDP per capita. So in other words... You've got the total population per person, how much are they actually producing, right? And this is the conversation, you know, because um, 
Australia's GDP per capita per person has been declining. Uh, it's been declining really for the last 80 years. Um, you know, if you go back to the 1960s, uh, the uh, production or the wealth, if you like, of Australians, like the living standard, if you like, of Australians was three times better than what it is today. In other words, um, they were producing more and fundamentally getting more of the pie than they are today. So you could go back um, really over just about every decade previous to where we are today and the quality of living and the the amount of wealth an Australian person was producing as part of the pie was better than where we are today. And um, that's where we we kind of get ourselves to. Really, this began in the sort of late 2010 where really uh, the conversation around inequality has begun to unfold because you're not seeing huge amounts of wage growth, but you are seeing the cost of living um, going up and up. And the counter-argument to more population is some countries which have huge amounts of resources, rather like Australia. Australia's got really the world's quarry, right? If we were to explain what we do in Australia, um, we are very good at digging up minerals and selling them. We have some of the largest deposits of gold, zinc, lithium, uranium, bauxite. We have copper. We have, uh, you know, iron ore. We have coal. We've got literally, you know, if it was a sushi train of minerals, we could run a sushi train of minerals. And that really puts Australia in a great position because not a lot of other countries uh, have such a huge, vast amount of minerals or energy sources. One country which does, uh, Norway, has a lot of oil. Um, if you were to look at really their GDP per capita, um, they run a smaller population. They don't run bringing more people into the country to prop up the system. They actually are much more wealthier than Australians. Uh, Australian GDP per capita is around $51,000. Norway, Norway or Norwegians, it's around $67,000, right? So uh, Norway produces more with less people. Their population is around 5 million people, right? So they are wealthier. They are they have a better standard of living um, than we do. And the argument that can be proposed within population economics is if you continuously bring more people into the country, you actually... Uh, fundamentally lower the living standards for the people in the country. In other words, there's more people needing uh, a part of the pie to uh, to to fundamentally go around, and 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 there just isn't enough to go around. So more people come in, they come in with skills, but they end up being Uber drivers, right? 
that is the current, I guess, system we're seeing in Australia. However, obviously, we're not a land of gopniks. Um, and when we look at some of the small economies around the world which do not have minerals or do not have things like mining or uh, do not have oil, uh, you can see that their GDP per capita is just just terrible, right? So uh, as you know, I'm in the 1% club in Moldova. Moldova is a strange little country in Europe. It's the um, you know, uh, it's it's the poorest country in Europe, and my wife is from Moldova. She's a Moldovan, and uh, apparently, I can be a citizen of Moldova. So uh, there you go. Maybe my retirement will be uh, frolicking around the Gopnik villages of Moldova, but. Uh, the GDP per capita of Moldova is around $4,500 per annum. The production of one human in Moldova produces around uh, $4,000. Not a lot of money, right? And there's also around sort of 5 million people in Moldova, right? So uh, Australia um, is productive. Um, we bring more pe people in. Uh, it fundamentally reduces the per capita output of of fundamentally um, each Australian, right? So that's just how it works. Unless you can grow your economy, unless you can create more industries, then uh, everyone's reliant on the existing infrastructure and the existing uh, industries, right? And so when we look at um, really the idea of what has been unfolding, we're also seeing that government spending is a measurement of GDP. In other words, we've just dropped around a trillion dollars on coronavirus and certainly most businesses are flourishing at the moment. Most businesses are booming because we've created a boom by uh, spending money and that money spent by government also gets measured as GDP. So... Um, you are seeing uh, fundamentally huge amounts of growth figures in GDP because of that spending. So we've created a deficit to create uh, fundamentally a production rate. And so um, it's just the way uh, the economy has unfolded off the back of coronavirus. And, you know, one would argue if it was a really good economy, would you need to spend a trillion dollars? Well, the answer, of course, is, is not at all. You wouldn't spend the money. But we've done it. Uh, it doesn't certainly put Australia in the worst position because we started the economic um, situation from coronavirus with being in surplus. We had more money in the bank. We didn't need to borrow and spend and create um, a deficit. However, um, certainly what has happened has happened and now we are in this sort of growth position. But when you add more people, uh, your, uh, your situation changes. Basically, the idea of increasing your productivity or increasing your GDP um, is really developed in four different ways. You can sell resources. Australia has a lot of resources to sell. Uh, 
Uh, we have all the iron ore there is, right? Um, you can increase productivity. Now, uh, if you were to explain what is going on inside of economics at the moment in Australia, we're increasing productivity because we're stimulating productivity, right? We're not necessarily selling more resources. We're increasing the productivity. Uh, you can invent things. Uh, you can innovate and invent. And Australia doesn't really invent too much, let's face it. Um, you know, if you look at the great companies that dominate the landscape around the world at the moment, uh, you know, you got Apple and Tesla. I mean, America is a very good inventor. American companies are very, very good at inventing things, right? Um, if we look at some of the big manufacturers of quality goods, you've got, you know, Germany, you've got Japan. These are these are big manufacturing um, productivity-based uh, nations. And of course, uh, the final way to increase your GDP is increase your population, right? So you can sell resources, you can invent things, you can increase your production, or you can increase your population. And of course, when you increase your population, what happens is people come into your country and they spend. When they spend, um, you know, you're adding to the production rate, right? And so, you know, you bring 10 more people in, they're going to need stuff. So the production increases and therefore your GDP increases. But one can also argue that it is a bit of a Ponzi scheme, right? That you're putting just continuously more people into the system to create the system. And this leads us to the conversation around real estate, the fire economy. Uh, housing controls the economy. Now, it's, it's an interesting thing to say, right? We learn off the back of coronavirus just how important the big rock of property actually is. If you stop property, you stop the economy. And again, um, when we look at capitalism as a thing, it's driven around borrowing. It's driven around finance. And to create more things, someone has to borrow and the easiest magnet of that production line is borrowing to buy a house. When you borrow to buy a house, um, you know, you're going to need services. You're going to need a coffee shop. You're going to need a Bunnings. You're going to need a road. You're going to need uh, a ladder to, I don't know, get into the ceiling to have a look what's in the ceiling. You're going to need a plumber. You're going to need an electrician. You're going to need a carpenter. You're going to need a pool guy if you've got a pool. Australia's economy creates a services economy. We build more houses. More houses are driven or grow the GDP because we bring more people into the country. Those houses, if you like, um, create jobs or spin-off services jobs. And most places in Australia are actually a fictitious economy based on nothing. And I alluded to this last episode, you know, I drove around uh, to many little 
places in Australia to have a look at what is going on over the holiday period many quaint little towns, and really there is no industry. There is no industry. It is a fabricated uh, dynamic. You bring more houses to a place and then you need more services. More services then create jobs. Those jobs then buy off each other and you get this kind of like circulation effect. Well, the plumber's got a bad back, so he's going to need a chiropractor. But what actually is the industry? There is none. There is none. A lot of Australia has no industry. It is fundamentally a Ponzi scheme to bring uh, more production or GDP into the country. And it is driven a lot through the fire economy, which is really finance, borrowing money, uh, insurance, and real estate. And really, uh, one would argue anyone who works in real estate is part of the fire economy. We we um, advocate, uh, you know, growth, production, more and more. And, uh, you know, for a property investor's perspective, you know, um, you know, more people coming into the country creates better locations because more people coming into the country – puts pressure on the best location. So you buy in good locations, so more people, uh, there's more pressure for the the overall pot moving around, right? So um, I'm part of the fire economy, right? It's just the way it is. And so um, when we look at the big industries that dominate and control Australia, one would argue the fire economy now controls Australia. We once were controlled by the mining economy. Now we're controlled by the fire economy, finance, finance, insurance, and real estate. And if you look at one of the biggest challenges uh, the Australian government dealt with during the coronavirus, you know, um, uh, contagion before really we had a vaccinated uh, uh, vaccinated population base was let's save real estate because everyone's job is connected to real estate because there actually is no real jobs in Australia. My job is not real. What's my job? The purpose of what I do really is just to serve people in the system, in the fire system. It doesn't, uh, you know, like my skill is, is very minimal when it comes to the idea of what is a real um, real need or service out there in the economy. So just so we're really, really clear, there are a lot of strange little towns in Australia, rural, regional uh, communities that basically offer nothing. They're service towns. They are service centres. When you go there, you ask people, what is the industry? Oh, we're a service centre. Okay, what do you serve? Oh, we just serve the community. We provide clothing, we provide food, we provide exhilarated services uh, to the housing market. Okay, so people live here, they buy a house, and then they basically circulate around an economy. It is fabricated. There is no purpose to it except that you bring more people into your economy, you create more taxpayers, and eventually 
those taxpayers pay a large proportion of tax to prop up the pension system. This is why quite often we refer to this as the Ponzi economy. And really, it's driven around property. You just build a house and then you start businesses around it. That is basically the context of what most Australian economics is. So population economics can be driven through, obviously, productivity, increasing your population, and also increasing your participation rate of uh, who actually has a job, right? So you can increase your productivity uh, either through innovation or um, creating more products. Um, and really, we don't create enough products here in Australia. It's been We've been found out. We've got no manufacturing industries. They've been chased away. They're done overseas now. So uh, how does Australia keep the wheels spinning? Well, we sell resources. We have very good agriculture in Australia and we have very good mining in Australia. And we increase the population. By increasing the population, we increase our productivity by creating more services. We are a service-based economy. So uh, often... The conversation inside of real estate investment is should you invest in Western Australia or not? Western Australia is too reliant upon mining. It is mining uh, reliant. Perth is a mining reliant economy. And I know in Western Australia, certainly over there, they have done a big job at trying to not just be reliant upon mining, but when we really look deeper into it, you could argue that the east coast of Australia is just a services economy. And really, it is just a fabricated economy. There is actually, um, you know, a mild amount of, of industry. Um, so, you know, there is a counter argument, certainly from Western Australians. And when we look at uh, the mining sector, it is... It is an energy-based sector, right? And so um, you've got uh, certainly a lot of real things that are created. Real iron ore is created that goes somewhere that gets then turned into steel, that gets turned into things, right? It gets turned into energy. Gold gets turned into energy. Um, zinc gets turned into something. It it is real. And so quite often I think, um, you know, we have this sort of conversation even around sort of uh, places which which have, you know, one of our big, big GDP drivers and, and you know, pick on it. Uh, you get service people picking on resource people. And uh, the reality is it should probably be the other way around. The reality is most Australian communities are what I call red rooster economics. They are red rooster economics. There is nothing there except red rooster. Um, and that is not real, folks. So we need to sort of comprehend that if we're going to be a property investor and really some of the big trends of late, if you like, are to go to service towns. 
as a property investment strategy. And I can tell you if there is a shift in population economics, service towns really will be some of the hardest hit because the only reason they exist is to serve another house being built, okay? There is no um, mining, there is no agriculture, there is no fire economy there. Um, They are basically just, uh, you know, a game of uh, population economics. So the reality is um, we live in a time where we're in a very suppressed interest rate environment. I mean, interest rates at the time of recording this, you know, are a tenth of 1%. Oh, well, that is the cash rate. You can still borrow money at sort of 3%. Um, that is ridiculously low. You know, I always talk about the fact that, you know, prior to this run of interest rate cuts, Back in 2007, I, I borrowed money at 11%, right? And uh, that was considered pretty good. Um, so, you know, that was uh, that in its day was, was a low-doc loan. That was 11% low-doc loan, which, which I thought was, a, a, you know, a brilliant loan at that point in time. Today, that same loan, low-doc, would probably be 5%, right? So we've seen this suppression of interest rates. Now, to grow interest rates, you need wage growth. And um, as I have alluded to, we're at a sort of crossroads where, you know, unemployment is or, or the participation rate in Australia of people working is very, very high because there's just jobs everywhere because migration has not been flowing. Now, what this will do if migration um, and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, for whatever reason, don't get into the economy, it will create wage growth. Wage growth will then create interest rate growth. Um, Australia's interest rates will probably be suppressed and very, very low for a very long time. And the reason being is the government is going straight back to bringing more population into the economy. And as you can imagine, if there is more people coming into the economy, obviously the proportion of jobs available uh, starts to ebb and flow. And of course, um, what you then get is this suppression effect of wages because there is more um, candidates for businesses to choose from. And so it's obviously good for business because business can um, fundamentally uh, work out how to expand. And the, the idea of it is, well, if business gets bigger, then they're going to need more people anyway. So there is this kind of push-me-pull-me effect of neoliberalism economics, if you like. And really, the idea of neoliberalism is just, it's, it's, a, it's a language or a term, if you like, which is used to describe policies of eliminating price controls, deregulating capital markets, uh, lowering trade barriers, and of course, lowering the bar. And when you think about the idea of that around immigration, you fundamentally are bringing more people into the country uh, and what that does is almost create more power 
for the business sector to uh, to push around the economy. And uh, so you lower the bar, um, make it harder for a worker to make more money, and uh, you increase the amount of people that you can choose from. And of course, what this does and what has it done to Australia has meant that wages are not keeping up with the cost of living. And of course, for property investors, um, they win either way, right? Um, They win either way because there are some advantages to bigger population coming into the country and there are certainly some advantages to having a small population base in Australia. Um, And really, if you think about it, if you've got uh, a wealthier basically population base when it comes to income, that means more rent for a property investor. If you've got more population coming into the economy, then uh, you've got more people fighting over the limited amount of space which is actually available in our cities, if you like. So either way, you're going to win. Property investors are going to win because Australia is now what we would refer to as a fire economy. It is a fire economic economy. We are driven by finance, insurance, and real estate. And um, really, you know, uh, I think last year really it, it even dawned on me just how much Australians, you know, rely on this thing called real estate. And for that reason, it is now probably one of the safest defensive assets you could ever think of despite the prices because the whole economy is rigged around this thing called real estate. You know, if uh, Western Australia was to become its own country, um, I guarantee you there would be a run on real estate in Western Australia. You know, let's face it, they're a bit weird Uh, they don't even want to be part of Australia. Uh, If they were to form their own country, they would be absolutely gazillionaires. Their GDP per capita per person would be off the Richter. They would probably be up there with, um, you know, the Saudi Arabians or something like that when it comes to per capita wealth. Um, And, you know, the reality is I think if, if, Western Australia said, you know what, we don't want to even be part of your weird red rooster economy over in the east, Um, there would be a run on property. There would be a massive run on property because what they have is real. It's a real resource-based economy. And it's not to say Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland doesn't have its fair share of stuff as well, but uh, certainly... Um, one of the downsides of Western Australia is they kind of need more of uh, some of the good things we have. And we'll talk about where the balance point is um, as we flow along. But the big advantage of bringing more people into the country is the Ponzi scheme. More pensioners um, that, uh, you know, an aging population, you prop it up with fundamentally workers. The counter argument, of course, if there's more money at the uh, to share around, you won't have to prop up your workforce, right? And 
Australia, you know, is a, a visa factory, right? We we bring people in to the economy. Um, you know, they come in as students and they hopefully end up as a skilled person inside the economy. However, you know, let's face it, there are basically a lot of people who end up coming to Australia who are not highly skilled at all and some of their skills are irrelevant to what actually the economy needs. And, of course, if you play the visa system, and I've had to do it with my wife being, um, you know, uh, uh, from another country, you know, you go from visa, you leapfrog visas, you do about 50 visas and then you finally are allowed to um, be part of the country. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, you know, uh if you put more highly skilled people in the economy, you um, you know you can invent things and you can produce things. If you put more less skilled people into the economy, you just create services. And if you look at the list of you know jobs which you know we need, um, you see things like you know just stuff like hairdressers and and it's not to pick on hairdressers my mum was a hairdresser but you know at the end of the day it's it's just another service sector job as part of this scheme that is unfolding right the cool thing about knowledge workers is as well knowledge workers tend to be more productive for longer um and I don't know, you don't see too many 70-year-old hairdressers, right? It just, I don't know, I, I'm bald, but, you know, I do walk past hairdressing salons and, you know, the, I have not seen a 70-year-old hairdresser. You're likely to lose your earlobe if a 70-year-old is cutting your hair, right? So no one's confident in the 70-year-old cutting your hair. But from a knowledge economy point of view, a 70-year-old working on their laptop, you know, in their whatever um, house, um, everyone's cool with that, right? So the idea of of bringing more knowledge into the economy and making sure it's real is you get a longer output of uh, production and that production in itself um, means it's less of a burden on the tax system to pay for the pension because the knowledge worker can actually enjoy working a lot longer and quite often get to their sort of age of retirement and semi-work. Um, and, you know, I'm already planning this, right? Like um, I've said to everyone I know inside of real estate, you know, I want to be semi-retired in in about um, eight years' time, right? I, I just want to work two days a week. I don't want to not work, <clears throat> but, you know, I'd be quite happy um, traveling the world and and checking in and doing some things and using my knowledge to to help the community I've been able to build, but uh, you know certainly as I get older, um, you know my skills aren't redundant. I just can use them in a different way, right? And that's the knowledge economy. So the system at the moment. Um, certainly is bringing in skills but then there isn't the jobs to go around necessarily so this is where you will get in an uber and you'll have an engineer driving you around in an uber and you're like mate you're an engineer why are you driving an uber it was like well you know they brought me here as an engineer now um i got into the system but there's 
you know, an influx of engineers, right? So there's too many. So then all of a sudden you get this uh, useless skill effect, which we often see inside of economics. Let's face it, uh, Australia is a pretty good place to come and the world's language is English. And for that reason, we are very good at creating visa factories. And, you know, the um, visa factories which we have inside our university system are massive. They are one of the biggest industries in Australian economics. Remember, we're a service-based economy and one of the things we serve up well is education and training. Something like a $134 billion industry. And of course, um, people almost like it's a self-liquidating industry in the context that you get students from overseas, you charge them a shitload of money. um, They then Uh, do the courses and the training and get the degree and then you self-liquidate them to become an immigrant so they pay for themselves uh, to be trained to become a skilled person in your economy. And so um, one of the big industries inside of Australia is exactly that. But if we look at where Australia's at with some of its biggest industries, it's very interesting. Most of them are service-based. If we look at the biggest industry, it's actually state government administration. The government is the biggest industry in Australia. Um, That is remarkable. That is quasi-communism, that Australia now, uh, state government administration is the biggest industry in Australia. Um, That is is very interesting interesting to me that um, now... um, the service sector is so big, we need uh, an even bigger administration sector to run the services. Um, second biggest uh, industry is the finance economy. Fire, right? Finance, money, banking, lending. Um, money, producing more money is a massive, massive player inside our economy. And again, like this is this is why it's it's – it's something you've got to play because it is running the show. Money is running the show. Finance is running the show. Uh, third biggest, professional services. This is like, you know, financial planners, real estate agents, part of the fire economy. The fire economy is in charge at the moment. And superannuation funds, part of the fire economy. It's just another part of this puzzle. Uh, you know, what happens is, particularly in Australia, we have a lot of REITs, real estate investment trusts. They, uh, there is so much money in superannuation, it needs to go somewhere. If there's nothing to invest in, then uh, the REIT itself is in, um, you know, it, 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 it basically can be in breach of its purpose. So you've got all this money that needs to find a home. And one of the best homes for REITs is developing shopping centres and developing retirement communities and new housing estates. And of course, what happens is a lot of these service communities are created, which are basically towns of nothing, but they are created because money needs to find a home, the fire economy. Health services, we know uh, the health sector is a massive, massive service sector, servicing the people 
who do the service jobs. Um, consumer goods, buying stuff, Harvey Norman, right? That These are our industries, guys. Then you've got mining, right? And uh, it's, uh, like iron ore and, and in its own right is um, one of the biggest industries in Australia. It's a real industry. You do something with this stuff. Uh, commercial banks. These are obviously different to uh, financial banks because commercial banks don't necessarily take deposits, right? They do other things. They invest. Investment, commercial banks invest in stuff and usually they're fueling this thing called real estate, finance and insurance. They're they're part of the fire economy. Uh, then you've got supermarkets, Coles and Woolies. Huge, huge, right? Food. So we buy our own services. It's it, it's it's quite sickening when you look at it, right? Um, then you've got uh, the next biggest industry, which is, again, a government department, which is public hospitals, right? So there you go. That's who we are. We are a land of migrants and we uh, spin off each other, right? So the impact of migration economics is fundamentally uh, pushed upon the state governments. It's a federal uh, concept. You bring more people into the economy because the GDP of Australia is run by the federal government. So actually population growth is uh, a context of treasury. So the treasury department goes, well, we need 200,000 more people to balance the books. And so it is really quite strange that it's run that way, but nevertheless, it is run that way. And so when we look at the migration intake into Australia, it is treasury driven. It is not policy driven. It is treasury driven. So what happens is a guy arrives in Australia, a guy, a girl, has paid no tax uh, for, for 50 years because he hasn't been in Australia, but he uses the same infrastructure as someone who has been here paying for that infrastructure. And of course, what happens is more people get on the train, um, more people need to fight over the Uber, more people... Uh, need to fight over the available real estate in good locations and for some people the quality of life drops state governments then um you know have to come up with a way to pay for this new person so they invent taxes which are not taxes but actually are taxes things like uh uh road tolls road tolls are taxes but they're not seen as taxes, but they are taxes. If you go around Australia today, uh, you know, state governments make a lot of money out of out of road tolls, right? So they they privatise this stuff, but uh, there's, there's money flowing, right? So again, uh, this, is, this is the challenge, right? And uh, obviously, the lower population movement is a richer per capita person movement, the higher population movement is basically more people to pay for the pension. That's that's typically how it works, right? And so it is a fiscal policy migration. Um, if you have uh, fundamentally the current kind of fiscal policy, if you like, is 180,000 people per year. Think about that. That's 
the size of Townsville being created every single year in Australia. That's a lot of homes. That's a lot of insurance sold, a lot of money borrowed from the bank, right? And by June this year, uh, the government wants to bring in 210,000 people, right? And a lot of that will fix some of the challenges because a lot of businesses just can't find the workers. And of course, a lot of the students, again, are really, really critical to the workforce of um, some of these service jobs. So uh, we are going back to the system which has been fueling Australia for a very, very long time. There is a counter-argument. Maybe you just grow the population base by 50 or 100,000 people. That way you get a bit of wage growth and you get less pressure on the infrastructure. However, uh, that would probably not serve the interest of big banks and, of course, some of the REITs and real estate investment trusts which build uh, a lot of Australia. Now, once I got to have a private dinner with a premier, um, a guy by the name of Campbell Newman in Brisbane, he was not the premier for long. People chased him out of town because he uh, fired a lot of public servants. Um, I got to have a private audience with him um, just to pick his brain on where Brisbane was headed. And, you know, it always he always reminded me, you know, Queensland, like many states, has, has a pillar. The pillar of economics is agriculture, tourism, and mining and construction, right? And really when you think about Australian states – the ones that do really, really well have very good tourism, very good food, uh, agriculture, and very good mining, right? Construction is the fourth part of the puzzle, and construction is this fire economy. And again, construction only works if you bring more people into the system. So construction is a massive, massive player inside of Australian real estate. And when we look at you know, overseas net migration figures, they've been very, very big for a very long time. If you go back to, say, the early 2000s, it was around 100,000 a year. By 2009, it was 300,000 a year. And we've been buffering from basically 200 to close to 300,000 ever since with a minimum of what we need of 180,000 people to basically fund the Ponzi scheme. More migrants, more homes, more inflation, more services. That's the model we run inside Australia. Property investors win either way because if there's less migrants, there is less supply of real estate there are higher wages, which equals more rent, right? So, you know, um, I'm not proposing a case for either. I'm just informing you. Just this is another briefing. So consider the briefing, right? But one could argue that if Australia was smart, it would create a fund that actually pays Australians. And again, if you lower your population base, you can set up uh, really a, uh, a surplus fund which distributes and looks after 
people in Australia because Australia, like Norway, is very energy rich and Norway has a sovereign fund. Basically, um, if you want to understand what that could look like, uh, you can even look at Alaska. Alaska in America has its own fund, what that looks like because Alaska is very energy rich. There's a lot of oil in Alaska. Um, what that looks like for Alaskans is every year they get a dividend from a fund. They get $1,600 a year from the Alaskan Permanent Fund. So if you can imagine, <clears throat> um, there is money that comes out of resources. If that money is then reinvested, it makes more money. And if that money is then, uh, you know, a dividend is distributed per capita, that is then put into the bank account of the citizens of the money. And it very much does happen in a lot of resource or energy-rich countries. There is this sort of, I guess, fund which is run for the benefit of the people. And uh, certainly you know, here in Australia, we don't, we don't run something like this. But the argument has always been, well, if you want Australians to be richer – uh, why not start a sovereign fund which helps pay for their pension, which helps create wealth? Um, and of course, if you have a smaller population base, then you've got more chance of a sovereign fund. And again, uh, this is something which will never be introduced in Australia, but it is working in other resource-rich economies. So Norway, for example, has a sovereign wealth fund. It's a government pension fund, basically a proportion of the resource-rich uh, oil, which is sold, uh, then goes into a wealth fund to look after Norwegians, right? So again, you can think through this stuff differently if you, if you go, well, uh, if we were to start a fund and you had a smaller population base, then everyone would get more money, right? Um, however, if you bring more population, everyone's going to get less money. But we don't actually even apply that logic to some of the conversations that we have around real estate inside of Australia, inside of, uh, you know, um, the great Australian dream here. So the conversation we're having today is the conversation of pie, population, infrastructure, economics, right? You've heard that before in real estate. Quite often we don't dig into what population, infrastructure and economics actually is. The economic part of population is today's conversation. And so this is why cities, whether they're Perth, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide, they're very good bets. The reason they're very good bets is they are not just weird red rooster service villages and they are not designed around just uh, this idea of fictitious capitalism. They are designed around proper things and if you look at the proper things they are designed around is mining, agribusiness like agriculture, energy, uh, tech, tourism, and of course, the fire economy, finance, real estate, and insurance. These are where their major job center is. And I think, um, you know, we've lost sight of that, certainly off the back of coronavirus, because there is some trends to 
disappeared to Red Rooster Villages um, and invest in Red Rooster Villages. Um, and I'm here to tell you that there is a fabricated underbelly around service towns around Australia. There is really no purpose for many of them. Uh, there certainly is a purpose for, for, for plenty. Um, plenty of regional places serve a purpose. I mean, I love Newcastle. It is a, is a great city. Um, it's got agriculture. It's got mining. It's got energy companies. It's got fire companies, finance, real estate, and insurance. It's got tech companies, health and government. You know, it's a good example of a small regional town that offers it all. And, you know, you look at the corresponding property values in that um, particular regional city. You know, this is the conversation, mission fit capabilities. And for a lot of service towns, they're just not mission fit. They only exist because of this thing called population. Now, obviously, right now, the participation rate of production is very high. A lot of people have jobs in, a, in Australia. Um, and when we me measure participation, it's basically uh, people inside the labour force age from sort of 16 to 64 and what they're capable of of uh of producing and and how many people are working compared to how many people are not and if we look inside of australia's participation rate it's very very high at the moment it's uh it's the highest on record um 66 percent of australians today work um and that's around 13 million people so um, that's that's an increase, or since uh, certainly since um, the start of coronavirus. If you said coronavirus kind of started in February 2020, we had a participation rate of 63 percent. Now we've got a participation rate of 66 percent. Anyone who wants a job can get a job today in Australia. There are plenty of jobs out there. Now, the participation rate is fantastic, but also um, what you may see is participation rate fall as migration starts to flow again. It's probably a natural dynamic off the back of it. When participation rates fall, it's very hard for wage growth to uh, fundamentally occur. So uh, let's uh, have a good thing about this uh, conversation when it comes to real estate economics. Um, I tell you what, real estate is really the best way to stay ahead of the rat race. You're going to make more money out of doing real estate deals because our economy is run through real estate the fire economy, population economics. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. Hope you enjoyed the show today. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.